Hello. Welcome back to Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with designers and creative thinkers uncovering the human elements of teams and modern business practices. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and we are kicking off season two with an incredible conversation I had with Kate Freeban. This was recorded live at Pause Fest earlier in the year. Kate is now Director of Design at Google Nest. She has had a very interesting career indeed, hailing out of Brisbane, Australia, studied as an industrial designer and has followed her passion and creativity around the world to Finland with Nokia originally, through Italy. She worked for Amazon. She's worked for Twitter and now obviously hailing in San Francisco, working with Google. We had a conversation that ranged across a number of things, but primarily talking around experience design and products and the intersection of those two things and how she sees the future of computing and how software and hardware integrate with our lives. I was also really interested to hear about some of the different corporate cultures that she's worked in across some of these great companies that she's found herself in and how they allow their staff to uh, flourish. It was a really great conversation and I think a brilliant one to kick off our second season of Humans Aren't Robots. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you will too. So without further ado, let's jump in with Kate Freeban. Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with us here today. Pleasure. Is it your first time at Pause Fest? It is. Nice. How, how's it, the experience been so far for you? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's wonderful being in Melbourne. That's always a big part of it. Um, but yeah, it's a cool vibe. I can really see there's something that's drawn me is the diverse range of speakers and topics. I think that's refreshing. Mm. So, so we'll get into your world. Um, I actually was lucky enough to sit and, and listen to you this morning. Generally, when I'm doing this podcast, you know, I don't actually get to see anything, but it was quite nice to come and have a look. So I'm um, currently working uh, with Google, Nest. Um, so tell us a little bit about the, uh, how design can turn a house into a home. Yeah, thanks. It's, well, part of it is we're designing technology for the home, really. Um, and with that, I think if you look at turning a house into a home, a home is really the personal side. And it's a lot of, you know, speaking for our industrial design team, a lot of what they're looking at is designing products that look beautiful in your home and also blend into your home. And then from a user experience point of view, it's like, how do we make that easy? And also be there when a customer needs us, but get out of the way so they can get onto their life. And I think that's part of looking at what makes a home. It's the people in the home. Do you know, it's not the technology taking over or like an LED beeping at you. It's you and your family in your own space. You talked about uh, the fact that a lot of the things that are in our home haven't really been reimagined for, for a significant amount of time. Yesterday I was speaking to Dom Pim, who's the founder of UpBank, a, a digital bank here in Australia. But he was talking about, similarly with banks, um, it's not about enhancing a bank's existing features. It's actually reimagining it from the, from the ground up. Um, is that something that, that, that you're thinking about in, in your role and, and what you guys are doing? Yeah, definitely. It's it's sort of one of my philosophies is if we're going to touch something and whether that's something little in an app, like let's make it better because we touched it, right? And I think that philosophy also applies to products. Like there's a reason we're doing this product. And almost the first one is like, as Google, why should we do this product? Do you know, it's like, let's do products only we can make. You know, we're not here to make, you know, coffee machines, for instance. That's not our expertise, um, so it's like be purposeful with everything we touch and therefore make it better. I'm interested in uh, 
your career trajectory and I mean I think it's exciting for some of our listeners you know to see Aussies that are out there in the world kicking goals which is which is awesome but um tell me a bit about your background and how you've ended up in the Bay Area at Google yeah no it's always it's thanks for asking the question it's nice to stop and reflect on these things I think a lot of it's definitely following my curiosity and my passion so I studied industrial design at QUT way back in the day and even during that I got really excited I think Back then I was like toy design or like looking at all the companies, you know, in America and Europe really inspired me. And by the end of industrial design, I was like, oh my God, I would love to be part of designing computers out of people's lives. And more the concept of computers, like sitting down at a table by yourself, staring at a screen. It just made me go, there's so much opportunity to design something different there, right? That's more human. So after university, I worked for a small industrial design agency in Brisbane called Emu Design. And back then, Australia had just a handful of industrial design agencies. There really wasn't much. There was a lot of competition, you know, more, not a lot of graduates coming out of university, but more graduates than there were jobs. So I was really lucky to get a job. And then um, I was there for five years, I think. And then I moved to another agency that was more focused on experience design. So that was sort of my transition from doing a lot of industrial design. And sort of finding this bridge between hardware and software and being really fascinated by it. What kind of products were you working on? Um, like one example was a security camera. I used okay. that this morning. So oh, it was yeah, just sorry, a yeah. really simple security camera mm. from back in 2003. <laughs> and they just wanted me to design the housing, right? Plastic housing to go around the camera. And I was like, but, you know, how is this going to be used? How is it going to be installed? Like we're trained like this as industrial designers to understand the whole human experience, mm. right? And I was just told, just make the case, make it manufacturable, make it cheap. And it's like, I can do that, but I need the whole picture. So, you know, I'm going to design something useful. Another one I had for a period of time, I was in a consulting company and I, we had a project with Cochlear, which is amazing. Like, you know, one of Australia's top innovators. And they had a really interesting project. And this is what, at the time, it really flipped me out where they were looking at developing a remote control to help people... Um, set the the modes for their hearing aids and what they'd done they had completely tooled the remote control but they had no ui so they had no software and my job they came to me going can you design the software and that was a real flip for me because before then i'd mostly been doing the hardware and here was a completely tooled product with buttons and screens and they're like can you work out what's in there and how does how is it going to work and i and we couldn't it was tooled and paid for And I just remember going, this is the worst project of my career because I'm so constrained. And long story short, it ended up being one of my favorites because I found a system and a pattern that worked. And even today, I mean, it was a long time ago. There's some, there's some threads of the original design in the remote control they make today. Yeah, which is cool. But that was also fueling, like looking at it from both sides of like being the industrial designer and then being the user experience designer and sort of seeing both sides. One of my questions, I will jump back into the trajectory, but is as an industrial designer and with that mindset, how has that helped you become a, a UX designer or you know, work within software? Yeah, well, I think in industrial design, they always teach us to look at the whole cycle, right? And you know, how are people experiencing products in the built environment? So I think that mentality of knowing if, if I'm so constrained and being told you can only design this, you've got to break out of it and ask the questions, you know, what is the purpose? And I think it's as in the designer too, truly believing in the problem you're solving. 
So I think that that sort of teaching from industrial design really comes through. I actually think that I have a couple of mates that um, I studied around the same time as you. I studied graphic design um, and visual communication. And I had a couple of mates that did industrial design in Adelaide, uh, UniSA actually. Um, it was interesting how much of a focus one they had on sustainability at that point because, you know, as product designers, we're looking at ways to make things more sustainable or, you know, also from the, I suppose, production point of making th- something, you know, affordable to produce too, but also sustainable. But also, yeah, that, that real testing human element. I think from a, a viscom perspective, especially traditional graphic design, there's probably almost less focus on testing and the user and how the, you know, the, the, the end result is actually going to interact with people um, whereas industrial there's a, a much more of a focus because things that you know have to be ergonomic and have to actually exist in the real world but I think that's actually really useful as a user experience designer or an interface designer yeah, yeah completely mm. yeah I think it's the core of what we do literally yeah okay so then after that second job where, where did you yeah go? after that second job I actually had Nokia as one of my clients and so it was a really interesting project because we were looking at um phones and mobile phone technology five years out and 10 years out. So it was one more of these forecasting projects that are less common today. Actually, you see a little bit less of that, but it was, it was really fun. It was back in, when was it? 2005. So we were looking at 2010 (laughs) and we were looking at, uh, was it 2015? I'm trying to remember the dates, but it was around those zones and maps weren't big on phones. So something we were working on with Nokia was like, what will mapping look like? So that was an amazing one to see evolve. But yeah, the next leap was after that project, Nokia contacted me, funnily enough, on Facebook. So this is the early day of Facebook. So I got, I got a Facebook message being like, hey, you know, we're looking for a designer who works like, you know, has hardware experience and software experience. And they pretty much explained me. And they're like, do you want to come to Finland? And I remember reading it going, oh, that's cool. And I think that weekend I told my mom, I was like, oh yeah, Nokia's asked me to for a job. And I was just aloof about it, like interesting. And she just burst into tears because it's this moment where I think she saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. And she was like, you're leaving, you're, you know, and I was like, let's see. I don't know how it goes. Anyway, I, I went over to Finland a couple of times to interview and then they offered me a job. So a few months later, I moved to Helsinki. So it was like 2007, 2008? Yeah, that was 2008. I moved to Helsinki. That would have been an interesting time at Nokia. Obviously, massive competition has just entered the market and their worlds. I mean, I, I think yeah. BlackBerry had already started sort of um, eating into some of their market share. But yeah, yeah, good old BlackBerry. Yeah, it's, no, it was amazing. For me, it was the first time I was in-house. I'd been in consulting before then. And what was that pivot like for you? Really bizarre because it was, I'm on the other side of the world and I'm in, it felt like I was at university okay. to begin with, but getting paid and I remember my first day, and culturally, you know, the Finns are different. To the, I, I was in a completely different culture. I remember my first day just being given a mountain, like a stack of boxes, a computer and a setup for home and like a couple of the phones that they were shipping. And they just sort of handed it to me and went, here's your desk and like, good luck. Because it was a company that was more, and you'll see this a little bit more in Northern Europe, it was more of a matrix. So it was sort of like, you know, here's your job, but go work out what it is. I mean, you won't even be told to go work out what it is. You just go get busy, which I I loved. I thrived in that environment um, in terms of, because I think being a consultant, I could sort of get about the way I knew how to do work is like hunt down people, collaborate, do work together. So I didn't have much structure. So I 
looking back on it, I can see how that helped me. In vogue again, that sort of, you know, flat hierarchy and all, all these things. But is that something that's historically just been done in that part of the world? Yeah, that's my understanding. It's a lot more of this independence. Like they'll say in terms of feedback, it's like if you hear nothing, you're doing well. Hmm. Right. So there's not this. I see it a little bit different in the US market where people crave constant feedback. Yeah. Um, in Northern Europe, it's not like there's not feedback, but there's a lot more independence and sort of expectation. You're an adult, you know how to get your job done, do it however you need to do it. There's been a few people talking about that. And if you're hiring uh, individuals that you believe are going to be high performing, um, it's going to be fairly clear cut if they're performing totally. well or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you see how people navigate themselves. Setting the bar high, but then giving a lot of flexibility in how yeah. you actually go about achieving exactly. it. But I think a big part of that is the culture. Right. Like, I don't think if it's not native to the culture, I think it would be hard to force. In your experience, uh, in terms of sort of culture and working in some you know, d- different tech companies, h- how do you see that forming? And especially something like a, a Nokia, which is you know, at that point, it's a fairly old company. Right. So um, it has probably gone through a lot of iterations itself. Um, is that something that is constantly having to be reimagined or it's fairly well ingrained in the in the DNA? I wonder, back then, it felt really ingrained in the DNA. And Nokia had had such an interesting history. Like, they're, they're a bit of a phoenix bird of a company, right? Where yeah. they made rubber tires. And I'm not going to remember the order correctly, but they made rubber tires, they made cables, uh, rubber boots. And it's they quite old, trans- isn't it? Sort of yeah, like very 50, old. 50, 60 years old? Yeah, and they sort of become a big company and then you know sort of gone back to the ashes and then reformed and i think the mobile to phone phone division being enormous yes i mean they took over the world for a bit didn't they completely <laughs> yeah um cool and so in your role there so 2000 i think the first smartphone i bought i actually pushed against smartphones for a while i'm not sure why but my friends had black i was in the uk my friends had blackberries and i was like i don't i don't want to be sitting there but I bought the, it was the E71 or one of the, one of the. Oh yeah, it's one of the business phones. Yes, one of the, the, yeah. the Nokia. So it was the, oh, Symbian, was that the, no, what was yep, the. Yeah, it was running S60. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. Symbian. Mm. Yep. Um, it was a good phone. I actually had it for, for a number of years. Like it was a, and that was sort of, yeah, the introduction of having maps in your pocket. And it really, I mean, it was kind of life changing looking back on it. I mean, it's crazy that it's only 12 years ago, but it, it really was having the internet portable whereas before yeah. it just wasn't possible yeah no exactly interesting and so, so what kind of stuff were you working on there from a design perspective so when i started i was part of a team so i didn't work on symbian or, at all i was part of a, te- a, a new team they'd formed to be like it's the next frontier right like we're developing a completely new os and it was a touch-based os yes. so this is where it's interesting nokia as a company had many brilliant minds and you look at a lot of their patterns they had a lot of the patterns for the touch phone iPhone happened to come out with it first. So, you know, that's a whole another interesting story to look at, like where a company might get comfortable and, you know, there's great ideas being generated, but maybe not necessarily the need to ship. And then iPhone came in and disrupted the market. So I joined, I think it was before the iPhone shipped. So it was also an interesting time to see the iPhone come out. And, you know, we were well into creating our new touch OS. But I joined a team, we were really defining what is this, you know, from... I'd never built an operating system. Sure. So it's the operating system and then it's all of the apps, the core apps that would that would be in the product. And then working, um, I mean, it evolved a lot over four years and working really closely with the industrial design team because they were also, if you look at Nokia had such a huge portfolio of products and a lot of it, you know, they had commoditized. So you've got, you know, off the shelf components so they're cheaper and like easier to scale. And during this team, you had an industrial design team that wanted to break that mold 
because if we're looking at thinner products and different screens, we couldn't be using the same parts. So they spent a good few years cracking that new path. And then we were working on like, what is the operating system? So we had the beautiful chance of designing the hardware and the, the operating system and the software at the same time. So they were designed for each other. Cool. Did that ship eventually or? It did. So the product we worked on was called the Nokia N9. Okay. Um, beautiful product. Um, I still think it's one of the best phones. <laughs> but it's the big lesson there was, or lesson I think insight for me was beautiful design and isolation doesn't mean good business. Yeah, fair enough. Interesting that point you made about uh, all those different you know business units that were there. I was just I just heard uh, Steve, uh, the CEO from Zero, talking about he, he spent time at Apple, but uh, about focus, right? About actually having that sort of very clear focus on on one product and, and and just going for that as opposed to trying to sort of separate it into yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. That's a really great project to work on, though. It was I mean, amazing. It's four and a half years. Okay. And. Four years in, we shipped the, the N9. And then a few months later, Nokia partnered with Microsoft. So this was the, I mean, just in terms of experience and seeing companies maneuver and change, it was incredibly eye-opening. Yeah. So yeah, we shipped the N9, but then Nokia and Microsoft partnered. So the hardware we had created for our new OS, um, the Windows phone software ran on it. Wow. So we did a, and it was, the, the design worked, but it's such a like mind shift. To sort of be like we've been designing and you know this bespoke details and now we're going to partner with microsoft and put their software on our hardware mm, especially since you had been designing them to you know to, exactly to and it together. was a a few of my really close colleagues i worked with during that time decided to leave the company which is understandable it's, it's like a huge shift and i stayed on and it was a cool experience because i was on the nokia side and that's when i got much closer with the industrial design team because at nokia we own the industrial design and the software was in a different company. And we were partnering, but it's not like we were building the software together. So I had this really interesting role where I would work with our hardware team to define the portfolio, like the hardware portfolio for the next three years, but then also work with Microsoft on where the hardware and the software came together. So things like the camera, like how is the camera gonna function? The lock screen was a really interesting one. If you remember Windows Phone, it's tiled, the tiled home screen. And they had just two rows of tiles and it was my last phone I actually designed with a really close industrial design partner. We designed a six inch phone with a high definition screen. And back then, this was in 2010, 2011, you didn't have these six inch phones. We could see the trends coming and we were like, this is definitely coming. And so we sort of did a skunk, skunk work project and created this six inch phone. But the big problem was Windows uh, phone UI did not scale. And it would just have the two tiles. So we're like, you know, this is going to look like a kindergarten as far. Yeah. So we got a lot of product managers on board to start working with um, Microsoft to be like, you need to make this scale and be responsive. And that's the change we got in. Because once they saw us, the, the phone was beautiful. They saw it. They're just like, we have to make this change. So that was sort of the work I did towards the end of my time at Nokia. Because it had just been sort of, you know, 10 years of phones becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And then they became big. <laughs> and they what, continue What year did the iPad big. come out? Ooh. It was around then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Nine, ten. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and the, we talk about phablets. Phablet. Sure. The term phablet was invented around that time. Yes, it was. Yeah, because everyone yeah. was sort of 
Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's crazy how condensed that time is, right? It actually yes. feels like a very long time ago. <laughs> I know, and that's a bit of technology, right? Where what technology does to us, where you're like, oh, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, literally. And you're like, yeah, it was only about ten years ago. Did you enjoy your time in in Finland? Like, did you? I loved it when I when I first moved there. I mean, I think I was a I was definitely a little bit scared. Um, so I had when I was in university, I did an exchange program in Milan, okay. which I also loved. Yeah. But it terrified me a little bit because at that point, I mean, the internet was around, but Italy didn't really have it. And I remember just feeling really disconnected. And um, and in the, in the end, I absolutely loved my time in Milan. But I think moving to Finland, I had a little bit of the same fear of like, oh, my God, I'm on the other side of the world. You know, my I don't really know anybody. I luckily had one of my best friends is Finnish. And I'm like, what a great chance to live in the same city as her. But on the way over, I was like, okay, I'm just going to stay for a year. I'm going to see how it goes. But I remember the day I landed, I just went, no, I'm going to make this my home because otherwise I don't think I'm going to settle in. And I did. And, you know, it took me a good six months to make my own friends and to sort of feel like I had a network. And then I loved it. Like Helsinki is this beautiful town that's small enough to, you know, walk from one end to the other. There's a lot of culture. Design is everywhere. There's a lot of sort of underground quirky things. Yeah, it was amazing. And then just such a difference from Australia. Like I'd never lived in winter before. I don't sure. think I really had a jacket. <laughs> no, were you from Queensland originally? I'm from Queensland. Well, yeah, you definitely didn't. <laughs> no, it was, that was a big change. It took me years to dress properly for winter. I've, I've never been to, um, to Scandinavia or Northern Europe really at all. I spent a lot of time in Europe. But one thing I've, having met people, I found that they really have a strong sense of identity and, the, and their history. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a good and where point. they sort of come from, and yeah. I, I feel like it's probably something we lack here. I mean, we obviously have a short history, but um, we have the, the Australian identity, but it's 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 yeah. quite different to what they have. Yeah, no, it's a good point because there's just there's cultures like some of the. I mean, winter is dark, so that was a huge change for me. And mm. to begin with, it was such a novelty. Uh, I mean, to have those seasons, right? Like Queensland doesn't really have distinctive seasons. Yeah. But it's true, people have this history and this culture. Like there's, there's little things like a certain month of the year, I think it's around February, I can't remember, it will be like this cream bun month. So there's a day where you eat a, it's like a sweet bun with cream in it. it sounds and, good. Yeah, and the culture <laughs> is you go sledding or skiing for the day and then you enjoy these buns. Yeah. Right, and I was like, this is so wonderful because there's like these food cultures that they'll use at certain times of the year and everybody does it. Do you know, it's just like, this is the it's thing what you do. Doing, yeah. We need the cream bun thing here in Australia. Let's make it's that amazing. happen. amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have cream buns. We just don't have the day no, everyone yeah. has to eat it. <laughs> um, we, were, we were talking about, so go, going back to Milan when you were there. So I'm interested in how, because I went traveling around the same time and it was sort of, and I left 2005. So that, so that was sort of you know, pre-big social media being a thing, but the internet was around, right? So you'd have to go to an internet cafe and sit there and... But, I was. I still felt connected back home, and think I was using. I can't remember what it was called now. Some photo sharing uh, site, you know, similar to what Facebook essentially became. It was. It was before Flickr as well. I mean, I, I used Flickr, but it was more basically you just upload, you know, albums and have uh, share them, and there, there was a connection thing on it. So you know, you could send family photos back, and there was that sort of sense of connection. So I think that ever since like you, know, you started using the internet, it's been about connecting for me like it's and and discovering and and so it's always been a positive but we live in a world now where i don't know i suppose you know 20 years into this becoming a a reality for us you start seeing all these other sides of it um specifically with the products you're working on how do you see i suppose going forward us 
continuing to embrace technology, but also focusing, I suppose, on the positives rather than the negatives. Yeah, because it is true. You start to look at this phone addiction, which I clearly have, right? And you're just like, how did this happen? Um, and there's this craving to not have it. Like, I think at the moment, like, you can go to Burning Man and that's a good chance for a week you're not going to be connected. I'm pretty sure there's still no Wi-Fi at Burning Man. But it's like a forcing function. But I think the positives, I'm with you on the internet opened up the world, right, to connect. And, and that's the thing, when I moved to Finland, I realized, one, the internet connection is amazing. And and the discovery, right, of being able to write an email or have a video call. Like, you know, even though that's so common now, back then that was like, oh, amazing, like FaceTime. I was like, this is a deal changer. And that's the, the positive, that you can be in touch with your parents or your friends or meet new people. Um, and I can see, and part of that I think is giving people some control back. Because with some of this, you know, we could break down mobile phones is like, we didn't think through the control. And now we're looking back going, ooh, and you've got screen time and there's the, you know, these, these little things that are starting to show up. It's a bit of what we think, particularly with our display products, um, something that's on my mind a lot and where we're gonna spend some time researching is we're creating products today. And if we look at what the mobile phone has taught us, <laughs> What research can we do and how can we get ahead on these products that when we look 10 years ahead, because inevitably there's going to be things we do we're just not aware of. But it's like how, and we're not, we're not going to be foolproof, but it's a little bit, how can we get a little bit ahead of this? You know, even seeing little kids come up to, you know, screens, they just roll up and stare into them and yeah. they'll probably do it for hours and it's a little bit frightening. Yeah, and start swiping on the TV. Swiping on the TV or just staring at photos and they're just completely mesmerized and you're like, these little people don't really have the control. It's like, how do we get ahead of that in a positive way? So these are questions we're asking ourselves because we love what we're doing, but we, we do have to have some awareness that there's things we're creating we might not know about. 10 years ago when you were working on the, uh, the Nokia product, like we, in terms of designing that operating system, like were you thinking about, obviously you were thinking about how, how people are going to use it, but you know, you know, gamifying the, the operating system or you know, adding in some of those hooks so that, you know, was that some of the stuff that you were actually thinking about at that point? Totally. No, not so much. Mm. I think we, um, a lot of it is I think from the design perspective is particularly looking at app icons. So even how we had a color system behind our app icons. So I can't remember the exact color system, but I do remember green was about communication. So, and, and the theory behind that was that you could easily look at a screen of app icons and know which one you're looking for. So we were more thinking about how to make this useful and that people could understand because the apps model was still pretty new back then. So we're like, how do we help people? You know, that was a little bit more top of mind. How do we help people navigate in apps? And then creating a guidelines for third-party developers. So it's like, how could they create an app that blends into the system? You know, you fast forward today and look at material design of where they've created a, a, you know, a design system. We were starting to look at that early on going, you know, so how can the apps look consistent? So when people come to them, they know how to use them versus that every app you dip into is like a new thing. And that's, that's sort of how I imagine a lot of these things have happened. You're talking about sort of screen time. Like I think, you hear people talking about how there's all these nefarious tech companies that, you know, engineering our world. But a lot of this stuff is just, you know, happy accident that, that we spend as much time as we do on these devices. It's, it's really interesting. So I, I use iPhone, but I, I literally have like 
all my apps turned off until nine o'clock. I, I literally have to oh, that's cool. block discipline. ban myself from from using it so that because otherwise you know it just you really just wake up and you, you're back on. It's sad. I have what I call quarantining my phone. Yeah, I so do at too. nine o'clock it gets quarantined upstairs. Yeah, we did. Me and my yeah. wife did the same. We have another room we put it in and yep. take it away because yeah, yep. it's uh, you're dragged back to it yeah. constantly. Yep, exactly. <laughs> okay, so. Um, Let's jump forward a bit then. So after Nokia, so what was the what was the gap then to Yeah, so after Nokia, I mean and Nokia was changing. Like Nokia and Microsoft had partnered. Um, I personally was like, I think it's time to leave Finland. Like I love Finland, but my you know, I've had an amazing time at Nokia, but I could feel the change coming. Yep. So I actually had a manager I'd worked with at Nokia called me up and was like, Hey, I'm at Amazon. Do you want to come to Amazon? And at that stage even in Nokia and our strategy team, we were calling Amazon the dark horse because they weren't really in the tech world. You know, they were selling books in America. And our strategy team, like we had started to be like, we know they're up to something. And he was like, look, I can't really tell you what we're doing, but we're doing some really cool stuff. And I personally was also, I've worked on mobile phones for four and a half years and I loved it, but I don't want to become the mobile phone expert. Do you know, I'm like, because you could in this world just keep designing mobile phones. And he was like, no, we're working on lots of bizarre and wonderful things. So I went to Seattle as well as the Bay Area to interview. And then they offered me a job. So I moved to San Francisco. Yeah, and I was, my, my role was put in San Francisco because the industrial design team was in San Francisco. And the main head office for Amazon is in Seattle. So the premise of my job when I signed up was basically to run across the hardware software. So to work between UX and industrial design. And Amazon's more of a hierarchical company. So my manager was like, oh, the problem we have is each product team is their own silo. They don't really work together. So even like design language, like a visual language is different across products and we want to have a cohesive portfolio. So the job I was hired for was to run across all of the different projects and sort of look at it from a frameworks and sort of design portfolio point of view. And so was that sort of pre-Kindle or around the time that No, Kindle been... Kindle was out. So Kindle was the known product and the Fire tablet were known. And then all the others you see today were under development. Plus more that haven't left the building yet. And that's, an, uh, that's probably an interesting, so some of the things that you were working on then, so knowing that Alexa was coming, you know, which, which from what I understand, they spent a, a lot of time oh, you yeah. Know, yeah. building out and uh, yeah. building the AI behind it. And, yeah. Yeah, um, I was very impressed uh, the first time I used that product, which was probably five, four years ago, five years ago when it first came out, at the sort of responsiveness of it compared yeah. to Siri, which you know at the yeah. time just didn't have the same depth of exactly. information that it could pull when you asked something, right? No, um, Alexa was a game changer because I think, and even, I mean, I sat in a room with Alexa for a few years and we weren't convinced, but sometimes when you're inside a product, you don't, you know, you don't always see through the customer's eyes. And I remember the day it launched, it was, it was Amazon style. It's pretty humble. It's, you know, trying to reach most people and it just took off. And you're just like, wow, this is amazing. It's an amazing point in time because voice assistants had been tried before, right? But they just hadn't landed. And it was this amazing sweet spot. I think it felt like, it always felt as if there was, okay, it, it, it didn't flow well. And so you, you'd ask something and there was a blockage there, right? So once you could say, well, I could ask it something you know, outside of, you know, what's the weather, but something a little bit deeper, like a, a historical date or just some, yeah. you know, something like joke. that or a joke. Yeah. 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 And that, that human element actually was, was yeah. really important, I think, to, to have that. Yeah. And some of those, yeah, the, you know, quips to uh, 
people answers that people might just throw at it you know yep. like, are yep. you my friend Alexa or whatever yeah, whatever it might exactly. be I think I think yeah. people kind of gravitated towards that yep so you spoke about this morning uh, in your talk about ambient computing was yes. that tell, tell yep. me what you see as ambient computing ambient computing is this it's this I think a part of and part of what I said this morning is it's we have a belief it's it's going to start in the home and I think the simple premise of it is is products working together right like at the moment you'll go from your phone to your computer and they might work together a little bit and then you have an you know a voice assistant in your home and they're sort of all separate experiences and your phone is your own phone and your laptop's your own phone and it's more of this premise of like what if everything worked together and it didn't really matter what screen you were looking at it would have sam's details and you could you know interact with it and it knows what you're doing and it also has that intelligence that it can start doing stuff on your behalf you know like root, everyday routines that you do um it could just start start going on without you having to like manage one system versus another system like uh, outside of uh, your work at google but looking forward do you see that being able to sort of cross you know uh, company barriers as well outside of you know os's yeah potentially like that's where we're at least giving people choices right i think being locked into one system can be um not the greatest thing when it's like ultimately giving people choice yeah and flexibility around, I suppose, their data as well, which is a whole other conversation we don't need to get into. Um, so in your experience working in design throughout the last 20 years then, and it's across different companies, how do you see the process having changed? So you talked about um, design systems and, and frameworks. That, that's something that's new. But what else has changed for you? It's good. I can see, I at least see there's definitely a growing importance of design and a growing need, right? Like. I even look back, I mean, as an industrial designer, the amount of, I had to explain to everybody in Australia what an industrial designer was. You know, it's like, yeah. do you design factories? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, and that's changing as well. And even the role of a designer, I think there's less base level explanation now. There's almost this general understanding, which helps. So from there, you can sort of go to the next level. How do you define design? Oh, design itself is really broadly. I think that's a very big, broad question. <laughs> we, we end up breaking it into to all of these things. You're putting me on the spot here. How do I find, define design? I think it's being, it's being really intentional about designing and creating experiences that benefit people. In the simplest, that's my lens. Yeah, at, at, yeah. at the core of it, because I think that there's something about. I think I, I wrote in the, the email to you some of these terms like human-centered design and, which, yeah, I mean, all design should be built for humans, and I, I think that while that's 100% what we practice, I feel like people co-opt these kind of, uh, you know, buzzwords and, and, and go on about that when the core of it should, yeah, actually just be designing things that are meant for a specific, you know, yeah, target, exactly. whoever that is, yeah. with them really at the center, of, which, which is human-centered design. Which is human-centered design. And there's design has a methodology and a process, right? And it, it's like we touched on, depending on what you're designing for, sustainability can be a really core cool function. And, I think we also think through the lifetime. You know, it's not just month to month, but like, where does this end up? And that responsibility, you know, if we're making something, where does it end up? Or who does it end up with? So I think that's also a core part of design, is that, that consciousness and awareness of what are we creating? Yeah, and why? and why? Do you know Stephen Gates? Have you heard of him before? I don't think so. Worth checking out. Designer. Yeah. So he, um, he has one of the design teams at InVision. Okay, um, cool. Really interesting writer. He's got a podcast as well. So he talks a lot about the, the sort of re-emergence of design as an actual uh, you know, word in the business lexicon and how design is actually at the forefront of a lot of what business is doing now. Whereas 
they, even even when you started your career, you go in as a designer and they, they expect you to have sort of, you know, a, you know, a paintbrush or something, you know, it's, it's, it's not expected you're going to come in and actually be at the forefront of how products are developed, built, marketed, shipped, and, and then that whole loop that comes back around. Whereas now it's, it, it really is everything. Yeah, totally. And sort of to finish answering your question, I've seen over the last decade or so more companies soak up design in-house, right? Like there was a model more when I was in consulting, it was like there were design agencies that companies will bring in. And then we went through a phase where big companies were buying up all the design agencies. I sort of see a new phase now where there's more design agencies coming up and specialists. Um, so it's, yeah, it, and I think that just shows you clearly the value of design because you can see it across a lot of businesses. Like I think it's, you look across um, every big company has a huge in-house design team. They put, InVision put out a, um, a report called, the, I think it's called the Design Maturity Report. Yes. Um, that, 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 yep. That's worth having a look at. But yeah, that, that, that was looking at how businesses are actually incorporating design into, into everything they do within and, and, and having that maturity internally to be able to reflect and adapt and, and you know have that sort of continuous improvement. Yeah, exactly. It's something I worked on with a friend years ago. We were looking at design culture, so building design studios. And a realization we came to, which is pretty simple, <laughs> but it's like as designers, we have these tools where we solve problems and we make beautiful products. And we don't often shine the light back on ourselves that we can use those tools to help ourselves and to help our culture, right? Of like research and designing an environment, a way of working, a way of collaborating that makes the way you work a really happy and satisfying place. Does that excite you still like as a designer? You- totally. Yeah. I mean, a big part of my job is leading people. So it's, it's huge to have like empowering people, setting people up for success you know, these are people with careers and, and dreams and it's like we need to create an environment where that can happen for them. Was it, so uh, after Amazon, was it, was it, how did you get the call up for Google? How did that, how did that? Well, I actually, I made, after Amazon, I went to Twitter for two years. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's the first time I haven't worked on hardware. So there was a point, um, I think I just wanted to change. I was like personally pretty burnt out and Twitter had been knocking on my door for a little while. And I never thought I would work for Twitter. I remember being like, oh, they're a really cool company, but you know, I'm, I'm in hardware. And there was a point where I was like, I was traveling a lot because Amazon's based in Seattle. So I was in Seattle pretty much every week for two years um, but, for a day but, here but and there. But based in SF and then But based in San Francisco, yeah. Okay. yeah. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd moved to San Francisco and I didn't really feel like I lived in the city. And um, yeah, Twitter was knocking on my door and I just went, oh, it'd be kind of cool to work for one of these San Francisco you know, it wasn't a startup anymore, but really San Francisco companies. It was also the first company I worked for that had the, like the free lunch and all of yeah, these yeah. things that you hear about. Like I, I definitely grew up in the school of hard knocks and you, you don't get those things. So I was like, I'm really curious about this. And it might be cool to try my skills at something completely different. Let's see how it goes. So I went off to Twitter and yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a different pivot for me. What was the role? So I led a chunk of the consumer design team. Okay. Yeah. And had you been leading teams at, at Amazon as well? Yeah. How, how have you found leading a small team myself? I feel like leadership is just something that you're constantly having to evolve and work on sort of every day. Um, how's that journey been for you? Yeah, it's, I began leading people officially when I was at Nokia and I resisted it like crazy. I was like, you know, and I even had uh, a manager on my team that was like, I'll manage the people and you can creative direct them, which I had done for my first few years at Nokia. 
and I wanted to keep that model. I was like, can someone else take care of them? You know, I want to just be in the work. And so I really resisted it. Um, and it wasn't really till I arrived at Amazon that I, I, because I was just given a team, I inherited a team that I realized like trust and getting to know each other and team leadership. And I really turned a page on what leadership was and how I dedicated my time. Was there any like mentors or books or things that sort of that you used at that point when you sort of were thrust yeah, into I that team? Yeah, I think a couple managers I had through my career that I just, particularly a manager I had at Nokia for a little while that just was an amazing leader. And I really learned how they empowered me, like very selflessly. Like they were just like helping me grow. And that really, and how they empowered other people around them, I really was inspired by that. So that helped me with my philosophy of, you know, more leading from behind um, and setting people up and, you know, getting that. I love the, the concept of positive tension that you can have completely different ideas, but your intention of like, you know, designing something successful is, you know, you're both on the same page there, but you can have those really healthy debates. Debate is so it's, healthy. Oh yeah, my God, it's so, it's so satisfying. Yeah. And I think it's something that you do have to sort of uh, empower people to understand that this is fine. It's, it's, it's fine to be dissent and, and to have a, a different opinion. It's, it's good. We need that. Yeah. Was Twitter, was it, was it a, a hard jump for you coming away from the hardware side or you sort of fell into it I think, seamlessly? Yeah, I think to begin with, yeah, it was really refreshing because it, it was just different. And I think I was like, how do, how do they make money? was just because I had never been in that type of business and and I still probably don't know. But I was just like, but how are these things working? And without like hardware give you hard deadlines and we have roadmaps that are multiple years long and Twitter just didn't operate that way. You know, and in some cases, a team didn't know what they were working on after a month. And that blew my mind because I'm like, whoa, to me, I was like, how do you set up designers for success when they don't really know what they're working on after a month? Um, so a lot of what I looked at is like, how do we create sort of a bit more runway for people that they sort of have that autonomy? Um, but yeah, it was cool. It was just cool to work out how the system works and it's a microphone for the world. Yeah. Like that was also literally, that was also eye opening. The other one is the design team had amazing design culture. So just looking at the events the team held and, you know, it was like a lot of warm and fuzzy stuff that was so thoughtfully done. And I had not seen that in any team throughout my career. It had been a lot more heads down work and definitely like cool design culture, but Twitter had very purposely put in and set up a system and dedicated people to thinking through how do we do design crits, you know, offsites, you know, Monday stand-ups, like a lot of these things that brought the team together. So I took a huge amount of value from that. Yeah, wow. In terms of, uh, I'm jumping around, but in terms of that, those roadmaps that you had, say, at Nokia or at Amazon, was there, a, was there a certain degree of agility within those businesses or are they sort of quite traditional in their sort of, uh, you know, project management approach, I suppose? Yeah, more traditional, um, particularly on the, like hardware. Hardware, you'll find that a little bit more because there's just known things that you need to run by. Yeah. And so, but Twitter were operating more on the sort of... Yeah, yeah, a lot more flexibility, at least from, from my point of view. But I think it was about three to six months into Twitter, I missed hardware terribly. Um, I still loved my job. And, and a big part of it was like when I moved to Twitter, I looked around the Bay Area and there was no hardware company I desired to work for. And that could have been mixed with I was a little bit burnt out, um, but I just didn't have the fire in my belly. Um, but three to six months in, the fire was burning again. Do, do, at that point, like, it's interesting, I suppose, from an outsider, I think, you know, listing off the companies you've worked for, you know, do you feel as if 
you're in a position there where you can basically dictate where you go or you still have that sort of sense of anxiety of like, well, I don't know what's next? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have too much anxiety. Like for Twitter, I really enjoyed it. I had an amazing manager. My God, the people. It, it, every job for me is the people, incredible people. So I wasn't, I, even three to six months in, I wasn't itching to move. I was still soaking it up, but I knew I had this like, oh yeah, this hardware is, is missing. Um, and I think it's more been when, when the right thing shows up, I can tell, you know, my gut is like, Ooh, there's something here. Um, but yeah, I haven't felt particularly in the Bay area. There's so much going on. You don't really, if anything, you almost have to put the blinders on a little bit and be like, I'm really focused on what I do. I really love everything that's going on right now. And it has to be something, you know, exciting enough to draw my attention away. You mentioned in your talk about, you know, the area being kind of a bubble in the sense that, you know, there's so much focus there and, uh, I've never lived there, but you know, having been there a few times, you, you can sort of almost feel it there. Um, I imagine it, it does feel like sort of the outside world is sort of a different place compared to what's happening in that sort of. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. You have to remind yourselves. You're like, we're in San Francisco, <laughs> right? There's there's just so much going on that's that's different, and you don't have to go too far away to sort of get reminded yeah. about the bubble. Sure. And then, so the pivot then was to get back into hardware. That was, that was, you found yeah, something that you thought it you wasn't, I wasn't necessarily into. looking. I ended up, um, I got a phone call from Nest one day and it was interesting. I looked back at it because I was like, yeah, it really made me think how far I've come in my career. The recruiter was amazing, but the way she spoke to me was, she was like, it was all the great things about the company. The company's, you know, design is at the core of Nest. So that was like, yes, that, that got me going. Um, quality was incredibly important. So there were all sort of those great design things and sort of the company's mission. But then she started to explain some of the trouble that they'd been having, like what, what the actual challenge was behind the job. It's kind of like she was showing me where the bodies were hidden and I loved it. I was like, yeah, show me the tough stuff. And that's when I was like, yeah, that's what's drawing me. You know, there's, there's the shiny, beautiful design, which is like awesome. Like I love that. But it was a lot of like, hey, you know, the team's had a lot of churn. Um, and the design team is strong and, you know, they need a strong leader and, and where they had the challenge. So that's that was sort of the, the thing that got me over the line as well. Exciting. So you came in as a, as a design leader then? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I came in and I was leading the, the um, Nest were a little bit smaller than we are today. So this was before Nest was fully rolled into Google. Okay. Because it was acquired it's been, since 2014. Or yeah. Yeah. So when I joined, it's what we called Nest was a bet. So it wasn't in main Google. We had our own brand, our own CEO, we're in a different campus. So it was, you know, pretty much like an a thousand person company, which was also amazing. It was one of the smaller companies I'd worked for. And that's what I was looking for as well. I'm like to work for a smaller company. It's just a different feel. More autonomy. And did you have more? Yeah, more autonomy. And there was something really personal about you get to know most people, right? You can recognize people in the hallway and there's a, it can sound cheesy, and at first, when it was described to me, I thought it was cheesy, but there's almost this feeling of family, right? And it's, it was really wonderful. It was sort of like, oh, wow, everyone knows each other and you can sort of approach anybody. Um, and I think you get that with a smaller company as well. I've never worked in a big company, so I actually don't know yeah. what the other side's like. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it can be a bit more like being in a public space yeah. where, you, where you don't know people. And depending on the culture, people might talk with each other or it might be more difficult to talk with each other. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it was a good bet because now it's been fully rolled into... Yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, as a bet, when I joined, I, I led the entire design team. So um, the UX team, industrial design, research, you know, all the disciplines that sit in that. 
And that for me was my sweet spot because I'm just like, wow, we're all here together. This is amazing. And we were, we were a small enough company with our portfolio that as a team, we could look across everything that was going on. Exciting. And so um, give me a little bit of vision, I suppose, of what sort of, uh, we haven't actually talked about the product that much, but what's, uh, what's out now, but wh- where do you see this, where do you see Nest and this, I suppose, this ambient computing going in the next few years? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it, when you look at ambient computing, I think a lot of the initial work is infrastructure because we talk about things working together. And, and my gut feeling is a lot of it is probably fixing things people expect to work anyway, right? Because there's, there's a certain expectation that things just work together, but they might not necessarily. You know, there's broken windows here and there. So I think a fair bit of infrastructure work is ahead of us over the next few years that then we can start building experiences on top of that. You know, and one of that is even just looking at household members. Like it's, I sort of alluded it to it in the talk today of you've got many people in the home and like adults will have an account, a Google account, but children might and elderly people might not. Um, you know, if you're setting up a device for your grandmother, do you think they have to have a Google account? Could there be an easier way to do it? So that's starting to break down because that creates barriers of where, you know, moving from one product to another or one experience to another starts to become a little bit painful. So I see like that's just an example of one of the areas to make that really smooth. Future proofing, I'd imagine as well. Like I, I, know, I know people that have had, um, you know, like uh, integrated sound systems done through the house, like pr- probably just prior to Bluetooth. And then all of a sudden Bluetooth comes out and you've invested 20 grand in it. So, so making sure that you feel as if, if you're going to make this investment, you've got... Yeah, it's exactly making that investment and it's looking at a big one for us is how can we make our products and services more accessible? Yeah, so, that is, you know, part well, of that is the accessibility affordable. of use, but also that people can access our products and be able to afford them. Yeah. Because you've, you've got a good point. If you go and invest in a lot of hardware and then a few years later, it all changes. You can be like, oh, everything changed on me. And it, that's a really big one to think through. So you spoke this morning about um, like the thermostats you can in- install with now. So my... my uh, parents-in-law actually in, in New York have uh, have that set up and, and it's amazing like she just chucks it on, on the, you know on the car on the way up there and can set the temperature of the house it's really, really cool having that ability I suppose to control more elements of our life via technology is fantastic and I think you know, I don't know why people often look at the, the negatives when there's there's so much positive there and I think that we should be embracing the, the positive side of things completely yeah yeah somehow the negative gets us distracted um but yeah no i think there's so many positives that you're like you know saving energy or your house is heated you know you're saving energy because the heating's off but a couple of hours before you get to the house you can heat it up so you're comfortable when you get there i think we're all as humans just becoming more interested in tracking sort of metrics around everything in our lives so fitness tracking and food tracking but then being able to yeah so energy is a great one um you know in australia we all should, you know, be using solar energy. But if we can work out, you know, how much we're generating and having all these metrics available to us, because it really shows you where the, uh, well, where things could be better as well, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that whole quantified self. It's like making the metrics available, but also the tools that you can do something useful with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it has to be, it has to be useful. And I like the idea of it being able to go cross platforms too. So it's not just one fitness tracker. So sleep tracking was quite interesting. I, I when I first got, I think the Apple Watch, but then Fitbit, like for a little while it was very interesting, but then it sort of, okay, well, how is this useful to me? But if it could play into other factors in your life, like stress levels or yeah. um, health, then yeah. that starts making well-being. a lot of sense. Well-being, exactly. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's, it's that application that it's meaningful to you because you can see a set of data and I think I went through the same thing as you. You're like, oh, cool. 
it says I slept seven hours. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, what does two that? Two hours of REM were great. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, what does that really mean? And and I can see that. Well, sorry, I can see that being the next stage of like truly making it helpful for people. You know that 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 data that you're being given isn't just data. You can apply it to your life, and you can actually be like, that was useful. That empowered me somehow. So are you excited about that future? I mean, you've, you've been working in tech now you know, for, for your career and, and sort of at, at the forefront of it too and seeing some really cool stuff happening. Are you, are you excited what's coming out in the next? I am really excited. I think it, honestly, we're just beginning. And it's it's something that gets me ridiculously excited about Google because we it's our leadership and also where we're at. We're, we're being given the chance to define things for the first time. Like in some cases, we're not working with a lot of legacy. And I look at that, like my industrial design brain and also my my experience and go, there's very few companies at the moment that are sort of giving us a clean slate to be like, you know, you go and decide what what to do or how this is going to be. You know, it, it comes with a lot of consequences, right? Like we have to be really responsible. But at the same time, I'm like, this is amazing. It's truly amazing. Very exciting place to play. Yeah. Well, it's awesome getting you back into Australia for a couple Thank of weeks. You. And it's thanks really so cool. much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Sam. If people want to find out more about, uh, well, they want to find you and also um, Ness, where can they look? Um, it's LinkedIn. My name's Kate Freeban. Um, Twitter as well. So I'm at Kickass on Twitter. So that's an easy one. Do you instantly get a verified account when you start working at Twitter? Or? No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. I even tried to get one. My brother's a stand-up comedian. And I was like, for sure. Um, and the rules were getting a little bit tighter when I was there of how you get a verified account. Yeah. Yeah. they got to be special. I'm sure there were some other perks, though. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much again. Cool. Thank Cheers. you, Sam. Hey, how's it going, guys? Sam here again. Thanks so much, Kate, for that conversation. It was a great way to kick off our season two here on Humans Aren't Robots. Shout out to Pause Fest for having us down. Pause Fest are about to release tickets for the 2021 conferences. A huge amount going on there. So if you head over to www.pausefest.com.au, you can find out everything you need about one of the world's great conferences. If you want to share our podcast, we would be most appreciative appreciative you know what i mean so you can do that by just letting people know humans aren't robots this whole season we are talking to creative leaders designers thinkers and really looking at how design plays a role in modern businesses and how you can do a better job of leading creative teams and bringing creativity and design practices into the everyday modern business so until next week i'll catch you later Cheers, everybody. Bye.